0: Good evening. It's good to be here again. And I'm looking forward to continuing our study in the book of Romans. So if you would get your Bible out, turn to Romans chapter 6. Uh, we will once again uh, continue where we left off last week. We're dealing with the first four verses of Romans 6. And we'll see how far we get. Let's pray. And then we will uh, get into the word. Father, as always, we want us to pause for a moment this evening to thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for preserving your word for us. For ensuring that we would have the truth, ensuring that we would have what you want us to have, that we may understand you, that we may understand ourselves, that we may understand life, that we may also understand death, that we may have hope, the hope that is found in Christ. And Father, we can really never thank you enough for all these things that you have given to us in your word, but we do want to acknowledge that they do come from you, and we thank you for that. We do ask, Lord, that you Your spirit would help us, Father, as we seek to understand and also apply your word to our life. Help us, Father, to be honest with ourselves as we evaluate ourselves. Also, Father, give us a great hunger to want to know these things and to understand and grasp what your word says. We also ask, Lord, you help us to remember these things, to think about them often, and that, Lord, that they would become a part of our knowledge, a part of our understanding of the world. So that as we, as we look at life, as we deal with life, that, Father, we would deal with life through the paradigm of your word. So, Father, we, we are just so grateful that we have your word. And so we ask now that you bless our time as we continue our study in Romans. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, Romans chapter 6, let me uh, reread verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism in the death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So remember last week, we covered the word continue that you find in verse 1, where he says, we ask the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the word continue, as we looked at it, uh, means here to persist habitually in something. Here it would be in sin. Should we persist habitually in sin? Shall we continue to allow ourselves to live under the reign of the sin nature? Again, the idea is the sin nature as being like like the king, and we are subordinate to him. So the answer in verse 2 is certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live, live any longer in it? So right after Paul mentions emphatically or states emphatically that the answer is no uh, to, to that, he then asks a question. He wants us to think about this. And the question is, how shall we, the, those of us who are believers, we've died to really the sin nature. We've died to the power of sin. So how is it possible that we would live under it? That, that, that's the question he's asking. So the Greek word that he uses for certainly not, I believe, is meganeto um, or gnoito. And it is a, a very strong Greek idiom. Uh, And of course, it indicates repudiation. Uh, Another is is a refusal to accept. It implies a casting off or disowning as untrue uh, or basically recognizing something as being unauthorized or that is unworthy of acceptance. So it's a very strong word that that he uses to answer the question, uh, should we continue to sin that grace may abound. So it conveys the idea of outraged indignation. So you could even say that there's an emotional punch to this word. So we could translate um, this, this way, may such a thing never occur. So Paul really is, as I said before, he's very emphatic on this. And that's very important for us to remember in our lives as Christians, uh, that when we get to a point in our life, which may happen off and on several times. Where we begin to, whether you want to say slide towards uh, continuing in sin, or maybe perhaps we get to a point we begin to take certain sins lightly, where we're basically giving in to the power of sin. We need to remember what Paul has said, and this idea that we should be absolutely against that idea, and not allow ourselves to even entertain such things. Again, this word expresses, uh, I guess you would say, the revolting character of the rejected assertion. That's what uh, Frederick um, Godet says in his commentary. It is a conviction that something is a falsehood. So again, for a Christian to continue in sin, because his sins are forgiven and because grace will abound, is an abominable thought to Paul, and it should be to us. Remember that when we're dealing with, the, with this these propositional statements of, of truth that Paul is giving to us here. Paul is assuming, and the Bible, I think, assumes this as well, especially in the New Testament, that we're going to live our lives as thinking individuals. The idea is that we don't just live by the seat of our pants. The idea is that we do not um, live by our emotions or live by our passions. Now, we're not suggesting that we get rid of them. But the idea is that we think in life and we think through life. That doesn't take away the joy of life. It doesn't take away spontaneity. It does none of those things. But the idea is, is that we are to approach life intellectually. And when I say that, that doesn't mean that you have to have a certain kind of IQ to do that. Uh, this is what God requires of all of us. We're all made in the image of God. God has given to all of us a mind. He's given to all of us this brain. And there is an expectation that we use it for His glory, for righteousness. And that then means that because of the the condition we find ourselves in, in other words, we find ourselves in this condition, that we were slaves to sin before Christ redeemed us, that it has deeply affected us. And we know that because that's what the Bible says. We also know that as we look at our lives, but we're able to understand what we've done in our lives by what the Bible says. So again, the Bible gives us this information that we need. So there is this understanding that we're going to think about our lives. The idea is that we reflect on our life. We think about the way we live. uh, We reflect on what we've done throughout the day, how we treat people, how we responded to situations, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, And so there's that idea that's inherent in the scripture concerning the expectation that God has about how we are to live and behave as Christians. So this point again is very important for us to repudiate. And that's because this justification is not intended as a license to sin. it has liberated us from sin. Now that's important because some individuals, and I think they're well-meaning, there's been a fear uh, among certain people that when they begin to understand what justification is, they fear that that's exactly what people will do. That people will say, wait a minute. So if I am forgiven, of everything I've done everything and that forgiveness is has been granted to me graciously and freely by Jesus and I'm forgiven for all of my sin past present and future I'm I'm free to do whatever I want which is true we're actually free to do what we ought to do but we can say we're free to do what we want. And that is true because what we want should be different. But back to the fear that people have. The fear is because they're thinking in terms of how a regular human being would think, they are fearful that we would think, wow, then, then I can sin. I, I'm, I'm free to do what I want. I'm free to hold a grudge. I'm free to, you know, tell small lies or whatever it is. We, we normally would justify ourselves, or at least somehow put a limit on ourselves and say, we wouldn't do any, what we call big sins, but we'd be very comfortable with the smaller ones. And so because of that fear, um, you know, there's, there's a a desire to try to uh, control us. It leads to um, becoming a legalist. And we don't, want to, we don't want to go in that direction. But there is this idea that we are going to adopt, that we're going to embrace this idea that we've been freed from sin. And that is to be the dominating aspect of our understanding of, of our justification. So it is God's provision not only to be declared righteous, but also it is God's provision that we be, that we live righteously. So there is that expectation, that is a command from God that we live in righteousness. We are now able to live in righteousness because God's given us the capacity to do so. He's given us really the help that we need to do so, which is both the instruction of his word and his spirit living in us. So our conduct as Christians really must be consistent with our Christian conversion We know that we're not going to do this perfectly, but that's why then the Christians should be quick to apologize, to ask forgiveness when we've done wrong. Uh, Because it's not just that we have done wrong and maybe done wrong against a person, but we have marred the image and the person of Christ and the message of Christ. And so that's to be, you know, part of our thinking as Christians. So this kind of goes back to a, a discussion that many people have, and many many Christians have had over the over many decades now, and that is if there's no change in your life after you come to Christ, then there is serious doubt whether you've ever received Christ at all, and that's just a true statement. It's not a, it's not a legalist kind of a thing. We're not we're not we don't have a list of twenty things and saying if you don't do these twenty things, you're not saved. But at the same time. You know, there are characteristics listed in the Bible as to what we are to be and what we are becoming as Christians. And if there's no evidence of those things in our lives, it at least should raise doubt in our mind. Uh, Especially if it's an ongoing situation. If it's something that's been going on for, let's say, years. um, It should cause us to have doubt. Uh, It really is a a probably much more common uh, than we would think that an individual struggles with that or maybe we should say they should be struggling with that. Uh, for some individuals, they think, well, there really can't be a big change in my life because I really wasn't living that poorly before. And that may be true. You know, they, they weren't, you know, uh, using illegal drugs. Uh, they weren't a drunkard. Uh, they weren't you know, living a double life. Uh, they didn't lie as a habit. They weren't violent, so they think of all those things, and so there's this there's this understanding somehow that they really won't be that different, but but they will be. They'll be very different. Number one, uh, we all do have certain things, sinful attitudes that are rooted deeply in us, and. There are some of those attitudes, maybe many, that we keep hidden from others. Maybe, you know, it could be an arrogance, an arrogance that we know we live pretty good, uh, and an arrogance that we're not really going to change that much, or something along those lines. So that attitude, or maybe our hatred of that attitude, should immediately be a part of our life. That, that, that I think that would come automatically, that that would begin to bother us, and we, we would want to deal with that. Um, we're going to be different because we're motivated differently to live the way we live. Because remember, before coming to Christ, we weren't motivated by a love for Christ. We weren't motivated by the love of Christ. Uh, we weren't motivated to live in obedience to God um, out of out of a uh, out of conviction. Maybe a little bit out of fear, but that doesn't really go far. So there should be differences. So the differences are not always going to be major in the sense that people notice a glaring difference. But there should be a difference, especially after several years. We should be more kind, more loving, uh, more tender. Uh, We should be more prone to doing good things for others. Uh, It should bother us less that people don't appreciate us. It should bother us less that people don't uh, maybe honor us or respect us. Um, It should bother us less What people in general think about us we should have less fear just in general Uh, we should uh, have a greater desire a greater love for both non-believers and believers so all these things should be happening in us so if there's been no change and you claim that you were saved five years ago ten years ago uh, you need to you need to look at your life maybe even ask someone who's close to you what they think about your walk with the Lord and ask them to be honest. Um, it may be difficult for them in the beginning and they may, they may need a couple of days to think about it, to once again, kind of close their eyes and go back over some things in your life and then try to, uh, come up with a way to express to you maybe things they find troubling. Because that can be that can be hard because sometimes we're just unaware of it. We, we, we accept people for who they are at times. So this whole idea of change, we, want, we don't want to go into the legalist camp, but we do want to state that there should be change and there should be ongoing change in our lives. So if you've been a believer for 20 years, you should still be different three years from now than you are now. If you've been saved for 30 years, you should you should still be more you should still be different in three years uh, than you are now so that that growth continues. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said an unchanged life is the mark of an unchanged heart. An unchanged heart is a sign of an unregenerate life. So if there is no change, if your attitudes are the same, if your outlook is the same, you know, let's say your outlook is, is the same. You're you're the kind that complains a lot, uh, or you just tend to be negative. That that needs to be different as Christians. There can be very serious doubt as to whether or not you ever really become a Christian. Remember that you can know the gospel intellectually and you can acknowledge that it's all true and yet not have submitted to Christ and place your faith. That's the danger of being raised in a Christian home. It's great to be raised in a Christian home, but no setting is perfect. And that's one of the dangers. Being a person who's been churched all the life, we become very familiar with the truth truth of the Bible and very familiar with the Christian language. And so as a result of that, it can be more difficult for us to evaluate our heart. And that's what needs to be done. John MacArthur said this. John MacArthur said, Paul is saying that death and life are incompatible It is impossible to be dead and alive at the same time. So a Christian cannot be living in sin when he's died to it. All who come to Christ make a break with sin, a definite act that took place in the past at the moment of salvation. If someone abides in a state of sin, he is not a believer. The Apostle John said, No one who is born of God practices sin because he is born of God. The person who remains in a constant state of sinfulness gives evidence that he's never left his unregenerate state. Some people have said this, they've argued, maybe correctly, that because we're human beings and because we know we're going to sin, uh, it may be the case that we're struggling with sin. So struggling with sin then means that not only that you experience guilt, but that you you stop the sin. When you discover that you've been unsuccessful in stopping the sin, then you take new measures to stop the sin. So you may still engage in the sin off and on, as you seek to try to find ways to overcome it. And eventually, that will lead you, if you're still unsuccessful, lead you to where you find another mature believer, where you confess your sin to them and ask them to help you. I mean, that's 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 what we should be doing as Christians. That's what makes what we talked about last week so disturbing uh, with Robbie Zacharias, is he was living in a state of sin, 12 to 15 years. It was clear that he, if he did try to overcome it, he was unsuccessful. There's actually no evidence that he even tried to overcome it. Uh, he definitely didn't confess it to anybody, you know, to try to, to get help. In, in battling this. So there was no struggle. You know, we don't want to be confused and say, well, you know, Robbie, like all the rest of us, struggled with sin. That There was no struggle there. He just plain gave into it, gave himself over to it and lived in it. Um, now, again, I, I can't be dogmatic and say that I know for a fact he was not a believer, but there is nothing that points to the fact that he really was. The main lesson from that is not for you and I to try to decide whether Robbie Zacharias was saved or unsaved. The important thing is for us to evaluate our lives and perhaps the lives of those that we're close to, that we're intimately involved with. Pray for them and try to help them because these things are still true, that he says. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a Presbyterian preacher back in the, I guess, the 50s, maybe 40s and 60s. Terrific, godly man. He said this. Holiness starts where justification finishes. And if holiness does not start, we have the right to suspect that justification has never started. So again, same. You know, they're all saying the same kind of thing. Uh, that holiness, the pursuit of righteousness, all those things should be a part of the makeup of the believer. Whether that person has been a believer for five minutes or whether that person has been a believer for five years. I have seen uh, with my own eyes individuals who have become believers who knew very little about the Bible. I preface it that way because, you know, if a person was raised in the church and they become a Christian, they're already familiar with a lot of things as to how God expects them to live. But if you have an individual who doesn't know most of the Bible it's interesting to see the kinds of changes that take place immediately in their lives. So I have seen, I, I've seen an individual who uh, knew very little about the Bible. He became a Christian uh, and he immediately asked me uh, if it was right or wrong for him to continue living with his girlfriend. Now, I, I don't know if he'd ever heard before that that was a problem you know, and I said, Well, I said it's it's sinful. I said you you can't have physical relations with your girlfriend. The Bible says to avoid the appearance of evil. Um and so he told me, he said, Well, he says but I don't have nowhere to go. And I said, Well, I know you have a vehicle. I said, Uh, you need to pray for your girlfriend's salvation, you need to sleep in your vehicle, pray that she gets saved soon, you guys get married. If she doesn't get saved, you can't marry her. Um Pray that god would lead you to an individual and that you'll get over this individual I mean, there's a lot of different options there so he did that and i told him i that i fully believe that if he sought to honor god with his obedience that god would honor him uh his girlfriend ended up being led to the lord a few days later by someone else what happened was is you know he moved his stuff out she was shocked by that she could not believe that she was actually very upset that he moved out thought there was someone else all that kind of stuff then she realized she could see him. As she looked out the apartment window, she could see that he was in his car sleeping. And so she, she knew he wasn't seeing anybody. So she called a friend of hers. Her friend had no idea what to say. So her, but her friend said, you can talk to my mom. And her mom was a believer. And so she, she told her girlfriend's mom what had happened. And so the mom ended up explaining to her the gospel and she became, became a believer. And so in a matter of weeks, then they were married and uh, you know, moved back in together. And we're going to church and things were fantastic. I've seen another man who who became a believer, who uh, he was in jail. And because he was the breadwinner, his family was struggling uh, to make ends meet. And so he became sensitive to that, where he really wasn't sensitive to that before. And two or three days after his conversion, which is really pretty quick, he called his wife and he owned two, Harley Davidson motorcycles and if you know anything about guys who have Harleys they love their bikes and uh he told his wife you know I want you to sell one of them so you can have money she was stunned by that she couldn't believe he said that She she said are, are, are you sure and he and he convinced her that yeah he was sure in fact that was so unusual that I thought that when he told me this I, th- I thought he was making it up I thought he was just telling me a story um but he told her to, to sell the motorcycle and then whatever money she could get for it to use that to, uh, you know, help things go. He ended up being in jail a little longer and he called up and told her to sell the other bike. That's when I thought I knew he was making stuff up. But then I found out a little while later when I was talking to his wife, we were just having a conversation. And she told me she says why um, I knew that. Him becoming a believer was real when he told me to sell the motorcycles and I said, well, there you go. I mean, I was stunned by that. You know, I wasn't going to ask her about it, but she confirmed that, uh, that, that was exactly what he had done. And he wasn't perfect. he has got issues, but that change was there. And it was evidence that he had really not just turned over a new leaf. He had given his life to Jesus Christ. Again, back to, um, verse two of Romans six. So the word how, it this? how is it possible? The word how leaves no room for the possibility of, of a believer living in habitual sin. In other words, Paul says emphatically to the question, um, uh, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, absolutely not. Then ask that question, how, how can we, or how is it, that he who's died to sin live any longer in it. So it's almost like he's saying, "How in the world is it possible that that could happen?" That's really where Paul's coming from. How in the world is it possible? There's there's just no room for this possibility, for this kind of scenario taking place. Um, so how is it possible for this to happen? Um, so again, it's a rhetorical question. It is assuming the answer. And so he so it's how how, how could you do this? It, it, it's impossible. Then we have the word died. How is it possible that he who's died to sin live any longer in it? So the word died there is important. Um, it means literally to die off, but it is it is stronger than just the simple word for death, which is thanesco. Uh, this is apothenesco, and I believe I'm saying that correct, but I'm not positive. So even though the New Testament does use that, that word, apothenesco, to refer to natural death, Paul uses it to refer to believers who are justified by faith in Christ and they have actually died to the power of sin. So what Paul is developing here is this is this idea. And the idea is, is we have this strong identity with Christ. You know, we, we talk about Christ being our substitute. That he died in my place. And he not only died for my sin, he died to sin, to the power of sin. And so Because when I become a believer, my heart is regenerated, God changes me, and part of that change is His Spirit comes to live in me. So, because His Spirit has come to live in me, the Spirit of of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live in me, then I I am also now alive, spiritually alive, for the first time. I was dead spiritually, I've now died to the power of sin. Because I'm alive in Christ. So Paul also, when he he asked this question, this rhetorical question, how is it possible? That is in the arrowest tense. And so the idea there is one of finality. It is a once-for-all, past-tense, historical event. So even though I seek to overcome acts of sin or sinning, I have, when I became a believer, you have, when you became a believer, At that moment you became a believer, you died to the power of sin. You no longer have to sin. The non-believer must sin. The believer no longer has to sin. He no longer has to live under the power of sin. We are truly free from it in every way. Which now means you have no excuse for any sin that you commit. I have no excuse. The man who's a believer who commits adultery can never rightly say well you know my wife and i my my wife was refusing me physically and so that led me to having an adultery committing adultery he may think that if she did that that that's a problem it did not make him do what he did it did not make him did it influence him sure but it didn't make him he chose to respond to his situation by sinning if you are a former let's say you become a believer let's say you used to use cocaine uh you are dead to the power of sin no matter how strong the physical urges feel you do not have to give in if you do it's not because you were overwhelmed it's because you felt overwhelmed and you decided, you decided, and you gave in to those impulses and dealt with the temptation by sinning. If you are an alcoholic and you are dealing with life, because that's really what's going on, you deal with life by drinking, whether you are dealing with happiness by drinking or dealing with sadness by drinking or whatever it happens to be, you're dealing with life by drinking. If you then give in, you are choosing to deal with life in the same way you did before. You no longer have to. It can feel incredibly hard, but God again has promised us that He will be so active and intimately involved in our lives that we never have to go that route. That's 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. You never have to go that route. This truth of the Bible is wonderful, I believe it's freeing, it is empowering, and it makes many people angry. They don't like it. We don't like being accountable for what we do. We don't like being held responsible. If, if when it comes to the whole addiction thing, you know, we, we can't adopt what the world says about it. But here's the truth of it when you read the bible and the bible says that everything we need for life and godliness is found in the knowledge of Christ that's that's second uh, peter and that's chapter 1 everything we need which is astounding if you think about it that then means that you never have to sin again you, you when we sin we sin by choice um so again You may feel overwhelmed, but you're not truly overwhelmed. When you read the Bible, what it does state clearly, and this is actually true for both believer and non believer, who does God hold responsible for our sin? Only us. Now, it is true that He holds us responsible for influencing others, but He doesn't hold us responsible for their sin. All right? So so if I if I influence someone else to commit a crime, the crime they committed, it, it's, it's not my fault, but I had a part in it. So that person is held or should be held 100% responsible for what they've done. But I am also held responsible for my part in it. Uh, I'm, I'm a 100% responsible for my part. So if I coax them into it, I'm guilty. So the Bible clearly teaches that. And, and that is probably, I would say, of the of the three most important truths that we need to teach to our children and our grandchildren is that they're 100% responsible for what they choose to do. That's not an uncaring uh, view of life. It is a view that doesn't allow emotion to justify what we do. Emotion uh, doesn't justify anything. If And sometimes we, 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 we want to give an excuse to a person, maybe our kids. Well, you have to understand that, you know, those boys were teasing him so long that he finally just gave in. It, it was more than any human being could take and you can't hold him responsible for fighting back. Well, there may be a lot of truth to that, but let's kind of switch the tables a little bit. Let's say that it was your son who was involved in teasing me. And let's say I was younger. And so I become emotionally overwhelmed and I fight back and I kill him. And I tell you, eh, well, you know, your son was teasing me beyond what any human being could, could deal with. And I just was overwhelmed and I killed him. You would not say, oh, well, when you put it that way. Yeah, emotions are strong, and I understand you couldn't help yourself. No, nobody would say that. No, it would be very different for you. You would say, I don't care what my son did to you. He did not deserve to die for that. And you'd probably be right. He didn't deserve to die for that. Did he deserve to be punished? Probably, but I'm not the one who's supposed to be giving out the punishment. So you know, we need to make sure that we, again, we're looking at this, first of all, at ourselves first. It's it's easy for us to look at society and see the trouble people are getting into and hear about how people are trying to justify their behavior. And sometimes we get sick and tired of people justifying their behavior and saying it's not really their fault. Uh, so we can easily find multiple examples in society Uh Of this kind of thing but what we're supposed to do first is always use the Bible as a microscope not a telescope the idea is I'm looking at myself first and foremost again back to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said uh, that before we take the speck out of our brother's eye we need to look at the log in our own eye that when you read through that he's not denying that there really isn't a speck that there really isn't sin in the eye of the other person it's there we need clear judgment on how to handle that. How do you get that? Eh, you get that by removing the log from your own eye. That's that's the that's the idea there. And that that's that's what's expressed here. So, Paul here, and this is this is an important nuance. Paul is not calling for us as believers to die to sin uh, because we did die to sin. Uh, we died. We didn't die for sin, but we did die to sin. Okay, Remember, Jesus died for my sin, and he died to the power of sin. When I identify with Jesus, I never die for my sin because he was my substitute. But because of my identity with him, I have also died to sin or died to the power, the sin nature. Um, so I've already, and you, if you're a believer, you've already died to the power of sin. It's, it's not an experience. It's it's a fact that's true of all believers all the time. Uh, our The way we feel about it, again, as I've kind of used illustrations, it's got nothing to do with it. From God's point of view, He sees you and I as dead, buried, and raised again with Jesus Christ. So therefore, we are united with Jesus Christ so tightly that we can never be separated. Remember, when you, if you keep reading in Romans, you get in the chapter eight, he asked the question, what can separate us from the love of God? You know, we, and, and that love there is not just God's general love for mankind. That is God's specific and special love for his children, for believers. What can separate me from that love? Nothing. And he goes through a list of things, of powerful things. There is nothing, named or unnamed, that can separate us. And so this identity we have with Christ, then, is not just some nice idea that makes us feel good. It's the truth of who we are as believers. And so, therefore, I am united with Christ. You are united with Christ so tightly that we can never be separated from Him. So again, it's not that we're dying to sin. We still actually need to die to sin. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. Um, And it's not that we will die to sin. And it's not a command to die to sin, not here. It's not an exhortation where it says you should die to sin. It's simple past tense. You died to sin. You have already died to the power of sin. If you've already died to the power of sin, how in the world can you live in it? And I really do think that should cause a majority of believers, a majority, at least in, in our country, or in our culture, that should really give us a long, we should take a long pause to think about our lives. You know, a lot of famous preachers, godly preachers have been asked that if, they've been asked this question in several ways, And, and one way to ask the question is if the rapture was to happen today, like if if let's say that there's a particular Sunday and everybody who's a member of the church is in church on that Sunday, if the Lord returned and and raptured his his people, what percentage of believers or what percentage of those in church would be left behind? Uh, or we could ask it another way: if all of a sudden everyone who claims to be the member of a church, or all those who claim to be Christians, if all the Christians were to die instantly just believers, how many of those so-called believers would actually go to heaven? And how many would go to hell? People like Billy Graham, John MacArthur, Donald Gray Barnhouse, a lot of great men have all said that they believe, and I'm going to be real generous, but they believe that less than 30% Of those who proclaim to be christians will go to heaven they're not trying to be judgmental they're not trying to be legalist again they're just because of of knowing human beings understanding human nature knowing how we live that uh at least when it comes to those who are christians in western nations like america less than 30 percent will actually go to heaven that's a really tough thing to deal with. It's even more difficult to try to con- convince a professed believer that they may not be. I normally don't try to convince a bel- a so-called believer that they're not a believer, unless I know so many things about them. But even then, I'm going to try to lead them by helping them evaluate themselves. They need to see that. It doesn't matter if I'm convinced of it or not. They need to become convinced of it. So it's a very uh, sobering thought that Paul gets into here in Romans and one that should not be taken lightly. Again, this idea of death, that we've died to the power of sin. Remember that the word death is used because death separates. Death to sin removes the believer from the control of sin. Uh, Because of the frailty of man, uh, the Christian at infrequent intervals does yield to the evil nature and sin. So the point is, as God has so constituted us, He has imparted the divine nature to us as the Spirit of God living in us, which should give to the believer a hatred of sin and a love for righteousness. Not a hatred for getting caught in sin, though we all hate that. But we should have a hatred for sin. At least a growing hatred for sin. That doesn't mean that you hate all sin immediately. But one of the aspects of the Christian is there's a growing hatred of it. We, just, we should just be tired of it. We should understand how devastating sin is. Even though sin may be fun for, for a while, kind of like drug use the first time someone does certain drugs or the first few years of their life using drugs may be fun you know they may be partying all the time they've they're, they're not worried about their responsibilities and you know all those things but you know after a while you get you get tired of it and and you despise it and you despise what it does uh some individuals, actually many individuals, I don't know if you know this or not, but about ninety percent of, of everyone who's addicted to like cocaine and, and heroin, of the ones who overcome it, about ninety percent of those did it on their own. You know, it, it wasn't through AA or NA or anything else. that it, it wasn't through conversion to Christ. They just they they just stopped. And normally the main reason they stopped is they truly became sick and tired of it. Oftentimes what's coupled with that is they love something else more uh maybe maybe if it's the man maybe his wife gave birth to a child and that woke him up and uh but the idea is that when when we sin it it's never we ne- we can't control the consequences we can't control who it affects and it causes widespread damage it always does and uh so god knows that and so that's why he He helps us in this way. So again, the Holy Spirit, who's been caused by God to take a permanent residence in us, remember God placed Him in us, the Holy Spirit is there to aid us in our battle against sin and to really help us in our effort to live the Christian life. So the practical application then of what Paul is talking about here regarding this death, you know, this death to the power of sin, which is really at the foundation of Christian sanctification, seems to be this. And again, this comes from uh, Godet's uh, commentary called the Epistle of Paul to the Romans. And he says this, the Christians breaking with sin is undoubtedly gradual in its realization, but it is absolute and conclusive in its principle. So again, there's a definite dynamic there of what should be taking place in our lives as Christians. And I, you know, you don't want to, I don't want to, like overdo it, but I do think that uh, again, in our society, in our culture, uh, we may not be able to emphasize it too much because we don't, we don't, we don't think like that. We don't take those things into consideration. And to say all this another way, the idea is that we are to break. It's like breaking friendship with an old friend. Let's say you have there's an old friend who's got an evil influence over you. Uh you can't just say well I'm only going to see him every now and then. Man, if this guy is bad news, you got to make a break, a complete break with with them. Um maybe even explain why. It's not going to make him happy, but if if he if he's wielding that much of an influence over you, that has to be done. Same thing with sin. You can't play with sin, even though we want to sometimes. We can't see how close to the line we can get that we want to sometimes uh, because sin is powerful and it's much stronger than we are. We will always lose that battle. And that just needs to be our mindset. We'll always lose that battle. Galatians chapter 6 verse 4 But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So what Paul's talking about there is another way to look at this. Again, being crucified is another way to talk about being killed or put to death. So the world, when he looks at the world and what the world offers, what the world without God, the allure, allurements of, of the world, um, it's been killed. To, to, to me, it's, it's dead. So there's nothing I want from that and also I've died to the world. Um, it's kind of hard to, uh, I'm trying to think of a way to, to illustrate that with something very practical or common. Um, every illustration breaks down, but we're just looking for maybe a nugget to help us to grasp the sense of what he's talking about. Uh, when I was very young, I was the manager of a of Pizza Hut in Hawaii, and when you work in a restaurant, especially a, a fast food kind of restaurant that has a limited menu, uh, in the beginning it, it's great. You know, you, every pizza I wanted, I, I could have. Uh, but after, and it smelled great. Uh, after a year or so, you don't really notice the smell too much anymore uh it's not that you hate it but it doesn't have the same pull after a couple years of that um you're just no longer interested in it you don't want to eat it you've had your fill of of pizza um if you continue to work there you may even begin to loathe it i mean not that you tell customers you know that you hate pizza but i mean that this would be where it's at it has it has no influence over you at all someone says hey I got free pizza. You're like, eh. So what? So the idea is that, in a sense, pizza has died to you and you've died to pizza. There's just no it's got no power over me. None. I, I can be I can be really, really hungry. I just don't want it. You know, I want nothing to do with it. Now we're not talking about when I'm starving to death. When you're starving you'll eat anything, but the idea where, you know, it's just You've skipped a meal and you're hungry and that's just not appealing at all. So it's that kind of thing. Obviously on a much grander scale than that. And we're talking about the world. Paul continues. So go back to Romans 6, verse 3. Paul continues with his reasoning through questions. He says, So do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So now he's bringing the thing together. So, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? May that never be the case. How in the world can those of us who've died to sin live any longer in it? In answer to that question, he says, well, maybe you don't know this, but you may not know, but we were baptized into Jesus Christ, meaning we were baptized into his death. He's talking about that identification that we mentioned before. James Montgomery Boyce says this. The clearest example that shows the meaning of, it's a Greek word, bap, uh, baptizo, which is the word that's used here in Romans six three, As many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. What does that mean? Uh, he says, he says the, the, the best example that shows the meaning of that word comes from a Greek poet and a physician named Nicander who lived in 200 BC. So he said it is, He said it's a recipe for making pickles. And he says it's helpful because it uses, there's two main Greek words for baptize and he uses both of them in uh, uh, in his recipe for making pickles. So the candor says that in order to make a pickle, the vegetable should first be dipped, that's bapto, into boiling water and then baptized or baptizo in the vinegar solution. That's where they're completely submerged and, of course, in this sense, remain. So both the verbs concern the immersing of vegetables in a solution. But the first is temporary, the the dipping is temporary, down and back up. But the second act of baptizing the vegetable produces a permanent change. So again, to make a pickle, you're using a cucumber, and so you've changed it completely. So the New Testament then, often uses the word baptized to refer to our union and our identification with Christ. And it uses water baptism kind of as an illustration. So again, this is not where we intellectually acknowledge that there are certain truths about us. There must be a very real union with Christ. When I am... And the reason why I I often use the word truly, when I'm truly saved, the reason why I, I say it that way is because it's common for individuals to say they believe in Christ, but, but they haven't. It's common for someone to say that they believe in Jesus, but they've not placed their faith in him. Um, so it, truly saved means that you don't only, it's not only that you intellectually understand the gospel, but that you have placed your faith in Jesus. So when someone has placed their faith in Christ, when you've been regenerated by God, there must be a very real union with Christ. Meaning that, so that spirit of God enters us and we are one with Christ. So a real change takes place like the vegetable becomes a pickle. And of course, we know you can actually pickle anything. Uh, in Hawaii, my favorite fruit, well, my favorite fruit's always mango. Uh, but you can eat pickled mango you, know, mango. you can pickle anything and it's actually pretty good. So the idea though, is that you've changed that vegetable or that fruit permanently that's what happens at conversion so every christian who's sincere about their walk wants to know how they can overcome temptation and they want to be used of god in his service that's that's what should be in the hearts of all of us so the question then would be this how can we find freedom from anxiety and really know the peace that passes understanding as the Christian because anxiety is a bit, and worry is a big thing in our in our culture today. A lot of anxiety. People are all kinds of medication for anxiety. Not the way to handle it, I think, but but it's still a a, a reality. How can we live at home the kind of consistent Christian life that you might be teaching in Sunday school or maybe what I preach from the pulpit. We need to be the same thing at home as we are everywhere else. How can we have real power in our personal conversations as we seek to show people their need of a savior. How can I do that? Well, one of the most important keys to a life that knows this kind of victory is the truth of our identification with Christ in his death and resurrection. That's the deal, uh, is understanding that. So several points that Paul is basically making here. Number one, we can no longer live persistently under the reign of the sin nature if you and i are true believers in christ we can't again we can struggle with sin we can struggle with certain sins but we cannot live under the reign of sin we cannot go on habitually being the same way Uh, so again let's take a common problem or at least one that people accept Let's say that that the problem we have is one of anger. And you admit that that you've been a believer for 30 years and anger has been a problem for 30 years. Well, I wonder what kind of problem it's been. Has there been a marked improvement? Not just, well, I'm better a little bit. No, there needs to be a marked improvement. It doesn't mean that you are no longer tempted, but there needs to be a dramatic improvement. If you find that when you let's say let's say you're a man and you argue with your wife and let's say that for 30 years a lot of arguments lead to you being angry there's a there's a problem somewhere because you're supposed to be a Christian Christians change that is the world will say that's unrealistic the world will say that is unfair God says, uh, it's a possibility. I will give you the power to do so. It is my command and my expectation of you. We are now to live, and we do live under the continuous reign of grace. I was living under the power of sin. I'm now under the power of God's grace. We are no longer under the power and influence of the sin nature because we've died to it through Christ. So again, we need to take a a hard look at our lives as as Christians. Uh, It really is actually very deep theological stuff here. This is not just trying to understand the complexities of the doctrine of salvation. Uh, This is grasping the actual... Regeneration, grasping the sense of what regeneration is, what what happens when God saves you and me. When, when God saves you and me, again, it's not just a position that we assume. Now I'm in Christ, now I'm adopted. There is to be a very realistic change that happens. Again, we're going to mess up. We're going to go back and forth. Uh, it's up and down, this growth in Christ. But I, I do think that too many either take it for granted or take it lightly. Oh, now we'll say, oh, I don't take it lightly, you know, because we get real serious when we talk about it. But I'm not just talking about when we talk about it with other believers. I'm talking about how we, how we live it out. Are we living out the faith? Living out the faith of Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and raised again. Am I living that out in my day-to-day living? Uh, that, that is what we are to be about as believers. Our identification or our union with Christ, again, is key. Again, not only an understanding that we've been delivered from the grip of sin, which means we no longer have to sin, uh, that we can say no to sin, that we now have guilt when entertaining sin, but again, an understanding how it is that we are to live for God. So we're going to have to stop there. Uh, and we're going we're to have to, uh, we'll come back to this next week. Uh, so to make sure we have a good sense of this, that's really important for us to have a sense of it, because uh, I think too often as believers uh, we don't we don't really have have that at least as we should. Let's pray, Father in, in heaven, we do thank you again for being so good to us. We do thank you, Father, for the truth. Though at times the truth of your word can be very difficult, uh, because Father it does reach deep into our hearts and minds. It's it's uh, really a a, a life altering truth that is that is psychological at its base in the sense that it affects our soul. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand ourselves in, in light of the paradigm that the scripture gives to us. Father, we ask that you would, you would give us victory. You would help us to overcome sin. We pray, Lord, you give to us the joy of our salvation. Help us to be strong. Help us to realize, Lord, that legalism isn't the way. It's not about following a bunch of rules. It really is about living free and enjoying the salvation that we have and enjoying the life you've given us. So Father, we pray that we would meditate on these things often and that we would continue to become different people. So bless us now, Lord. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.